This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Hello, I'm Damien Venuto. It's February 8th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Healthcare has always been one of those battleground issues in politics. MPs love to sling mud over what the other party has or hasn't done in terms of building hospitals or paying nurses properly. The current government has made a big deal out of funding our healthcare further, with $30 billion assigned in last year's budget. But given how much attention is paid to healthcare, why does it always seem to be in crisis? Over the last few months, Business Desk has been investigating the business of health, how the sector works, and if New Zealanders are actually benefiting from that funding. Today, Business Desk Investigations Editor Victoria Young joins us to discuss their series and how effective our health spending is. Victoria, healthcare got $30 billion in budget last year. How much does that equal per New Zealander and as a proportion of government spending as a whole? The health budget for 2022-2023 is about $30 billion, so we've worked that out. It's about $5,800 for each New Zealander, and that is one in five of New Zealand government's spending. How much has that figure changed over time? It's interesting. It has increased. It's up 84% from five years ago. But over the next five years, it's expected to sort of actually less than plateau. It's actually expected to go down because we've had those COVID years. So it is up, but at the same time, the population is increasing. How does that government-funded healthcare balance out with the private healthcare sector? How big of a business is that side of things? It's really interesting. When we tried to find the data on this, it was harder than we thought. So as an industry, if you look from Statistics New Zealand, it's a $17 billion industry. That's 12 months to March 2022. So that's on par with the primary industry sector or construction. But when we look at these figures, that's the healthcare industry in New Zealand, but including what we export. So like, for example, Fish and Pike, massive New Zealand business, but all of what they do basically is exports, and that's included in in the industry. Victoria, can you take us into the New Zealand healthcare sector and explain to us where public sits and where the private healthcare sector sits and how they work together? Depending on the discipline, right, depending on whether you're talking about dentists or lab workers or pharmacy even, the dynamics changes. But in in general, there is always something that is publicly provided. There's always a sort of like a bare minimum that the DHBs provide. The extent to which they outsource what they do is quite interesting. For example, in the lab testing field, it's highly privatised. You know, the DHBs are hardly doing anything and the efficiencies in that are quite interesting. But, you know, other areas, I mean, you look at our hospitals, you look at what they outsource in terms of food, linen, those sorts of things are provided by the private sector. People don't even realise that, I think. But there are DHBs, well, there were DHBs making individual decisions on a cost basis or on a who-they-knew basis about whether they go private or public. So it's a quite an interesting dynamic. 
So the, the Business of Health series on business desk that you've been working on looks into how well the money the government is spending is actually being spent. So what's been your key takeaway from that series? It's a total minefield out there. When you talk to industry and business people in healthcare, they complain quite a lot that there's not a lot of money. And it's funny because there was a lot of money that came in through COVID. So a lot of these businesses have spent all of that money because they needed to spend it on COVID, but some do have some money in reserve. So it is really different depending on what discipline, but it is it is really hard to tell. There's also this perception that people working in the healthcare industry and sector are paid quite well. Is that reflected in what you've found? A lot of the frontline workers, I would say, well, they're saying they're not paid well, right? I mean, then they are the frontline. I think it's an interesting time at the moment because, for example, GP nurses, right, they're crying out for the government to pay them more, but they're not interested in asking their, where they're privately owned bosses for more money. They believe that healthcare should be paid by the government and that's the dynamic that the government has to wrestle with, that privatisation or profit is a dirty word in this sector, so the government is expected to, to provide money. So there is a bit of an awkward dynamic there between the private and the public side. Yeah, depending on which industry you're looking at, but like especially with nurses, I mean, yeah, the corporatization of, for example, GPs, which we'll go on to talk about, is definitely growing and it's interesting who the individual workers are looking for money from. These services that are putting out healthcare to the most needy in our, our community have been underfunded, under-resourced, at capacity, never enough workforce to actually address the issues we're confronted with in terms of a very high needs population. So this is a reflection of a system that has been under pressure, is not working and is not addressing equity, nor has it for the last two decades. Given how much money is being spent on healthcare, why are certain areas always crying out for more money? We're going into an election year. You know, maybe these unionised workers are looking to get what they can before a change of government. I think that's why there's that narrative. And we've had COVID, which has exposed New Zealanders to deficits in the healthcare system and made them appreciate more, which gives them a political impetus to, to argue for more money. Is there also perhaps a concern here from those unionised workers about the upcoming plateau in funding that you suggested earlier on, that they recognise that now is the time to get what you need because there will be a period where there isn't more funding? Yeah, that's entirely possible. And it does look like a lot of the money that was pumped in, like Andrew Little, he said, oh, we gave GPs lots of money during COVID. Well, they spent it on PPE and they spent it on providing the services and extra hours and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. And that COVID thing has just sort of twisted things because money did go in, lots of money, but it was spent on providing services in an emergency time. So, What do you make of Andrew Little being removed from that health portfolio? It's really interesting. I think there's going to be a very interesting political race coming up to the election between Dr. Shane Reti and Aisha Verrill because they're both doctors. It's very early days, but Aisha Verrill's really performed well so far. People like her. We don't know what she's like as a business manager, though. I mean, we know Andrew Little's style was very combative. I mean, he's fighting with GPs. He's writing them seven-page letters complaining that their facts are right or wrong. It's very intense. That's his style. I think Chris Hipkins maybe wants to put a fresh face on it and not remedy things, but get relations back on track, maybe. I mean, Aisha Verrill's a very good performer so far. Victoria, how worrying is it that some patients in New Zealand need to fight for years to get access to life-changing drugs? Yeah, it's interesting. We haven't done too much work on pharmac, but it is it is a political minefield. And it's really dependent on the advocacy groups, I think, and how well they're able to 
politicize themselves and put themselves in the right in the right place and talk to the right people. You almost need money in order to create a big enough campaign in order to push things in one way or the other. So that that is problematic for the people who are suffering from conditions that are pretty rare quite often. Yeah, and it's interesting, I guess, the way that journalism works in general. It, you could take one report, you know, you look at Patrick Gow, amazing reporting on a specific drug. I don't know what or how that captured his attention, but definitely uh, made things interesting. Let's just talk for a moment about GPs and pay. A report commissioned early last year found that general practices need a 231% increase in order to operate correctly. Why is there such a dire funding increase needed? And how have authorities responded to this report? Basically, I mean, GPs have been underfunded for quite a long time. And obviously, we're going through this massive centralization of the health system now, too. So that's sort of like a excuse, maybe, to review things. What Rob Campbell, the chair of Te Whata Ora, or the new centralised health system, told us was it's not a priority because this report was done under the previous administration, under the DHB model. But it's very interesting because we've actually just released a report about GP ownerships and the stats that show the corporates are taking over. Whether this is right or wrong or, or how that dynamic's going to play out, it's going to make a difference because, you know, retiring GPs, they don't want to keep running their business and have their, you know, they're mortgaging their houses to run these sort of things. Why not let a corporate take over and get cost efficiencies? But it's sort of quite hard to see how that's going to play out in terms of funding and, and what will happen next. If you move to Northland now, you won't be able to get into a general practice at all. The fact is that there simply aren't enough doctors in, in that particular part of the country. The consequences to patients of not being able to access care is that it increases the burden on our emergency departments, it increases the burden on our health system as a whole, and more people will end up in secondary care because of delayed diagnosis. Well, what will that mean for patients? Is there a risk here that those who can afford healthcare will get better healthcare than those who can't? I think that's really hard to say at this time. I do think that GPs are realising that the old model of sending flowers when someone passes or those little extra things, they don't run under the corporate model. Things are going to be different, but GPs are, I wouldn't say less interested, but they're doctors, they're not <laughs> businessmen. So it, it changes the dynamic of how how they care for their patients if they have to worry about bottom line. We do have these massive conglomerates operating in New Zealand with a big say over key parts of the healthcare sector. Last year, you wrote a story on lab workers at the Asia-Pacific Healthcare Group. What is their pay like versus the profits their owners made? In terms of lab testing, there's definitely issues with the workforce there to do with migration and to do with um, the way it's developing. But these guys aren't being paid, you know, worse than minimum wage or anything, but they're doing a lot of manual labour. They're feeling really underappreciated because during COVID, you did a lot of testing. It was a lot of samples. And that is a lot of sort of like manual work, which is tiring for them, plus wearing all the PPE. So, I mean, the big stat that you really shone out for this story was these workers, they got a $300 Prezi card in 2021, yet Asia Pacific Healthcare is paying its owners a $40 million dividend. So that has to trickle down to patient care and outcomes if the workers themselves are not happy with what their corporate owner is doing. So if you have an unhappy workforce, that's going to be reflected in the treatment of the patients who are coming in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of lab workers don't have contact with patients, but the phlebotomists themselves, the ones that draw your blood, boy, if they're unhappy, you know it. 
How common is this disparity between pay and profits when private businesses are involved and how much government funding is going toward these companies? You would think that healthcare is a great place to profit in, but then at the same time, we're seeing a lot of charities in this space. These are organisations that don't make money. A big question, and I guess we haven't quite addressed it yet, is why are charities needed to fill these gaps? Why do corporates feel like they can't enter this space because maybe there's, they can't create efficiencies or, or make money out of it? We don't want business owners to not make a profit if that's what they're, they're wanting to do, but there's got to be a dynamic between the government and private business that keeps the system running. Is the concern with charities that it undermines the idea of a safety net in New Zealand? Because if we're reliant on charities, then that means if those charities pull out, then there isn't the funding available. Absolutely. And it comes down to this whole way that Andrew Little, the previous health minister, had described profits and and how he he sort of doesn't want people making lots of money out of healthcare. Well, it's it's a very tense area because some money has to be made. And, you know, GPs are saying to us, you know, Profit can't be a dirty word. There has to be some uh, acknowledgement for risks that happen in the healthcare sector. One of the biggest aspects we hear about in the healthcare and funding is the pay that doctors and particularly nurses receive. Is this having an impact on our ability to hire the staff that we need? It's really interesting when you hear nurses and doctors, you know, walking off the job and wanting to do to do other things instead. It's really not just the migration setting. It's really the way that these people are treated. And I think, especially with nurses, it's some of this is the historic way that profession has always been underpaid in the same way teachers, those sorts of professions that really care and are really frontline for our communities. For years, nurses have called on the government to pay them what they're worth. Now a landmark settlement acknowledges nurses are underpaid because women traditionally held the job. They were told these new rates would be backdated to the end of 2019. That hasn't happened. I feel that if we were really treated as if our male counterparts, we would have been backpaid. Victoria, when you look at the fact that nurses are so underpaid, This is a predominantly female sector of our workforce. Isn't this an opportunity for the government to address that massive paying inequality that you have between male and female workers across the workforce in New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my view, we all know that, that it's just so historically undervalued. The same with teachers. So it is something that the government really could address with more money. I mean, the other thing that has been teased out to me, though, during this project, is there are a lot of different types of nurses. There are nurses that work for GPs. There are nurses that work in hospitals. There are Plunkett nurses, for example. They do different things, but they all should be valued, you know, in the correct way. Victoria, when you look at healthcare spending in this country, why does it seem quite erratic and sometimes poorly targeted when problems with wait times and wages are clear issues? Surely there is enough political will to fix those things. I think so, but it varies a lot depending on where you live or what treatment you get. I guess that's part of the motivation for the centralisation of the healthcare system. And I think DHBs, in a way, aren't necessarily motivated to be efficient. Actually, one champion DHB that I will talk about is Christchurch, which is actually seen as an innovative DHB that creates software and thinks about ways to help people in a sort of more targeted way. But they're not really incentivized the way that profitable businesses are to innovate necessarily. If, if you're always given money by the government, then why would you necessarily improve 
what you were doing or, or find efficiencies using, for example, technology. Do you think that centralisation will help uh, create better incentives or create better efficiencies within the healthcare sector? It's really hard. I think Rob Campbell's got a really hard task ahead of him to make sure that it all works. But, you know, if you look at something like IT, for example, there's got to be efficiencies made by having one system. But it's, it's, it's really hard to say at this point. Given all the cost pressures, is there any realistic hope that we'll ever see government subsidise dental in this country? I mean, dentistry is subsidised to an extent for children. And in an emergency, I think we do have a bit of cover. But when you're looking at the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists, for example, saying 40% of New Zealanders can't afford dental care, that's a massive issue. But then we've also got a cost of living issue where we're subsidising fuel at this point. So if you look at food and fuel as real essentials, where does your dentist fit along that scheme? Although there's got to be, I mean, it's an election year, there's got to be sweetness. So it'll be interesting to see what each party comes up with. Victoria, we're a few months away from the budget and an election later this year. Do we need to see a change in the approach from political parties and healthcare operators to make sure that this huge amount of money is being better spent? It's interesting because when we talk to healthcare operators and just business in general, they will say in election year, everything gets talked about, but nothing actually gets done. So they'll just be sort of waiting to see what happens. But, you know, we saw that with COVID and the dramas around testing, nurses, that it will become a hot issue. So I guess for businesses, it's their chance to really sing out about what they do. I mean, talking to lab workers, for example, they were just like, in a way, COVID was really hard, but it showed people what we do in this important healthcare infrastructure that nobody even thinks about. Thanks for joining us, Victoria. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and edited by Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.